Hello and welcome to another episode of Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed Index quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. Today we present to you with a special edition podcast focused on medical education. I'm your co-host, Karthika Selvaganesan, a second-year graduate student in biomedical engineering. And I'm your co-host, Huachi Lee, a second-year graduate student in chronic disease epidemiology. Joining us today is Dr. Robert Hahn, a renowned scientist and author whose work focuses on education and health equity. Dr. Hahn, thank you for joining us. Could you tell us a little bit about your work and background and how you first became interested in learning and technology? Uh, sure. Uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, I'm an anthropologist. Uh, I have a degree in public health and epidemiology. I work at the Centers for Disease Control, but this uh, work that I'm going to talk about is not part of my official work at the CDC. I did spend uh, about seven years at the CDC conducting systematic reviews of educational interventions, things like early childhood education and uh, dropout prevention and school health centers to try and figure out whether these programs can help poor and minority kids get out of poverty and improve their long-term health. Um, as an anthropologist, I uh, have long been interested in how societies reproduce themselves, by which we mean, you know, every culture is different and people think and speak and have different values all over around, around the world. So how do they go, how does a society go about uh, transmitting this culture and way of thinking and speaking uh, to its children. And, and as we call it reproducing, it's not exactly reproducing, but it's uh, embedding in these children the, the, the values and the way of thinking that you want them to have and that allow them to be healthy and productive uh, individuals in your society. Um, so I've been interested in education in that way for a long time. <clears throat> also, uh, my own my own life, I, I'm, I'm kind of a geek. I I I, I um, spent my whole life studying and and being at school. Um, and uh, you know when I when I asked myself, uh, so I, I went you know I went to graduate school, undergraduate, then I got another degree in in epidemiology. Um, I asked myself, what is it? What are the important things that I've learned over the course of these many years? And um, the stuff, you know, the information, uh, uh, how to do this, how to do that, that's important. But most, many of the details of that kind of thing, you know, like history and what happened when and literature, who wrote what and all that, that, that that's really vague. What, what I think that's most important uh, to me in my work and in what I do is learning how to solve problems, learning how to frame problems, learning how to uh, understand what issues are and explore and get into things. And so, and, and that's how I've come to see myself as my own teacher. So even when I wrote the paper that we're talking about, I, I was talking to myself, you know, I, I think of, I think of people as a con each person as a conversation, you're talking to yourself and you're teaching yourself using things that are inside and outside. The paper is called Your Most Important Teacher. 
Um, and so, Dr. Han, for the listeners, could you kind of elaborate um, or maybe summarize what the paper is about? And as a question, uh, you talk about learning and teaching and that learning is inherently self-teaching. So could you maybe also elaborate on what you mean by that? Like, what is self-teaching? Some people think that that a student is fed information and that just kind of piles up and it, it's stored. Um, I don't think that's the way learning happens. Um, you, you, at any point in your life, you have a, set, a framework, a way of thinking, uh, basic knowledge, basic values. You also have ways of learning, of, of saying, well, he said that, but I don't really believe that, so I'm going to reject that. It doesn't correspond to my way of thinking. Or she said this, and, oh, that's interesting. That fits into what I believe, so I'm going to stick that over here, or I'm going to tweak what I think and, and modify it. So you're, you're always, you are the you are the shaper of your own knowledge and you're basing it on what you already know, but also your tools of learning. That's, that's what I mean by self-teaching. In the paper, you talk about like internal processes and internal-external interactions. Mm-hmm. So what are these processes? And so you say like we are always learning or, or we are teaching ourselves and we use learning tools. But how do we gather these tools or how does our interactions frame these tools? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, if you, left, if you left a child, I mean, there have been stories of at least stories of uh, children left in the, walls, uh, in the woods and, and, you know, raised by wolves and things like that. Uh, and and they don't have language. They they probably they probably know things. They probably get around in the woods and so on, but they don't have the the you know the richness of knowledge and and the at least the kind of intellectual problem solving that we have. So, you know, so even an infant an infant comes into the world with this enormous capacity and and appetite for for knowledge and figuring out what's going on out there in this bizarre world that it's new totally new and and whatever that basic framework that he or she comes in with uh she 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 sees things and she organizes them in what with whatever tools she has to begin with and the tools develop too so the you know the teacher can improve the tool help improve the tools uh, and that's and that's you know what that's what I think learning should be about, improving your tools for self uh, education. So there there are things that are coming in from the inside, but you're also working with with information that comes in, in and digesting that and sorting it and throwing some out and tweaking it and so so there's this there's an input from the outside, but there's also a lot of activity on the inside. I think of learning as an Activity, not as something that's passive. Um, it's you, you, you. You're always judging and and classifying and sorting and rejecting and tweaking. So that's the internal external uh, contrast, and uh, the internal part is the self as teacher. So do you think a young so as an older individual, we are able to kind of really work with information and be active and proactive about how we engage with information. Do you think this type of self-teaching is inherent for like maybe a toddler or for a five-year-old? Like how do they know and how can they be proactive 
about really engaging with information, right? They don't really have that tool or the time or patience to do that, or I wouldn't think they did. Well, you know, there are, there's some experiments I describe in the paper. Even, even infants less than a year old can begin to recognize things, and, and they can recognize a mistake in arithmetic, you know, taking, adding one to two and getting three, uh, subtracting one from two and getting one. They can recognize those things. They have some really clever ways of studying those things. So they do, they do have some basic framework. It's really hard to know what that is because they can't, they can't communicate. And even, you know, I've, I've contemplated this issue. I mean, can you imagine an embryo from an embryo to an infant, something has to be going on that, creates this capacity to absorb knowledge and create knowledge and and uh, absorb information. Even, even in the womb, I would think some kind of learning processes are going on. So there, there are some basic tools that an infant must have, and education and socialization and act, interacting with a child, um, you know, verbally or non-verbally is a way of strengthening those, those tools. Language, of course, then becomes a, a huge tool, but uh, even before language, the infant is, is really busy learning. Mm-hmm. That actually transitions really nicely into our next topic in that a common view on the way we learn is the idea that knowledge piles onto an initially clean slate. But you mentioned in your essay that you consider this to be a misconception. Could you elaborate a little bit on why that is? You know, the word datum, it's a Latin word. It means things that are given. I, I think it's a very misleading notion. It's as if there are these little packets of information that are out there and we just gather them and pile them up and put them into this. Another another metaphor is the empty vessel. It's as if we were just pouring stuff in and there's there's no sense of activity and processing and judging and sorting and so on that I think are the essence of, of learning and, and self-teaching. Um, and uh, th- this view is described as empiricist or naive empiricism, just the idea that, you know, everything is sense data and it's just somehow in- you're inducing uh, conclusions. But I, I don't think, I think, I think the mind is a, is a framework and it, part of it, that framework are the tools that we use and the values that we have and so on, that, that apparatus that, uh, that makes creates knowledge from from so-called data, and so there's a, con- a strong contrast between those two uh, perspectives. So you're saying that we don't just have pockets of data in the brain. We're going to, or we're collecting these pockets. Is that what you're saying? No. Well, we we we. I mean, even a even a so-called datum, some piece of information that I absorb, it's different for me than it is for you because you have different associations with that thing whatever it is and so you you react differently to it and you and that's because you have a different framework and you have a different history and experience and even way of judging things and so that's you know it's it's a data it's a it's 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 a given but we the active learner make something out of it i guess then in terms of as opposed to a clean slate what would you describe uh the kind of slate that we have now then? You... <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not really a slate. That's, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's uh, but we, or, or if it is a slate, it's a really multidimensional slate and we are the writers on that slate and it was never blank. 
So, you know, there's a lot of uh, qualifications to to any way to think about uh, a slate. So you're just saying we we like you get more information and th- our interaction with that information is going to be different. So you can never have a clean slate. We're just always adding right. or and you, even even an infant doesn't have a clean slate. Right. Uh, you have a linguist Chomsky, Noam Chomsky. He he he's he revolutionized linguistics because he said that. Uh, we are born with the capacity to learn any language, and our minds are are generators of, of sentences. And this is an innate capacity. He called he, uh, Stephen Picker described it as the language instinct. It's a, it's an inherent thing. It's a capacity. I mean, we have to interact with other human beings to develop that capacity, but we're we're born with it. Very cool. So I think one thing that we think about today, especially in terms of learning that has infiltrated our lives, essentially is technology. It has made it so easy to just look things up and find answers and learn. But what do you think it has been the effect of technology on self-teaching? I think of it as a two-edged sword. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you stick a kid in front of a TV and, and it, it, it's a passive thing and the, the kid has no interaction, the kid's not the, the TV doesn't ask you to do anything. I, I think that's terrible. I think it's uh, uh, destructive of learning capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you can. All, I mean, I use I use computer all the time to find, look things up. But you have mm-hmm. to you have to use it in a very critical fashion. Mm-hmm. I, I'm gonna, but I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, mm-hmm. I did I did my <coughs> excuse me I did my uh, anthropology field research in the Amazon with a, a tri an indigenous population called the Rikbaksa. Mm-hmm. And um, they are they're hunters, and they used to drag me hunting because I had a rifle. But they um, they also they also used bows and arrows. And uh, when they hunted a monkey, they would shoot up into the trees, uh, and and then the monkey would run, and eventually they'd hit it or it would run off. But uh, or they would wound it, and but it would still you know they could run and shoot after this monkey for hours, mm-hmm. and. Um, now I would turn around twice and I'd be totally lost, mm-hmm. but they could go back three or four months later and find all their arrows, mm. <laughs> which I find astonishing. Yeah. Uh, so, so because and and so they have they have trained their memories in ways which uh, I find hard to imagine, and um, because they don't they don't have this. You know they can't look anything up. They don't have GPS right. yes, or anything. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, that's a capacity that they have cultivated uh, just because of the way they live, and it's it's obviously useful. So, what do you attribute that to? Just like basically from the familiarity with that area, just living there, they've like wired their brains to know and be oriented at all times. Is that why? Well, it's it's just a skill that. Not being able to rely on uh, any kind of memory device, mm-hmm. their their mind is the memory device. So they they can they they have this highly developed memory because they don't have any other resources. That, you know, the practice it must be enormous. So in the absence of of technology, that's what they have developed. Do you think then that modern day life has kind of intrinsically change the way that we think and learn and maybe even how our brain processes information? 
but that's beyond my expertise. I, it seems it seems quite possible. And you know, with, with the more we rely on technology, uh, I think I think we'll gain some capacities. I think we'll we may lose others, like like that like that capacity that these people have to remember detailed activities of of months ago. Mm-hmm. So we may have like a loss in our memory or our ability mm-hmm. to. Yeah. Although I, you know, I imagine if I had lived, if I lived there, if I were to go back and live with them for a few years, I, I, I might be able to develop that. Maybe I'm, <laughs> maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not young enough. I don't. Yeah. Gotcha. So you mentioned some of the positive and negatives of, let's say, putting a child in front of a TV screen, but in terms of, let's say, more interactive nowadays, iPad apps and that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you think uh, that is a positive influence and how we can kind of harvest those technologies to improve education and spe- yeah, specifically I, I, in I, early child development and infant learning? Uh, well, there are, there are programs that uh, have been used to uh, cultivate uh, learning activity and, and, and problem-solving activity uh, that, are, that, are, that are programmatic, you know, that are, that are computer-based. Um, I've I've gone I've seen classrooms in which um, the kid interacts with the computer in solving, for example, arithmetic problems. So it, it can be individualized for each kid. You know, if you make a certain mistake, then the computer comes back with a an, another uh, with information that corrects your mistake and tells you what what you did wrong, and then you do it again, and so it can be tailored to the issues of that kid. I also I also think they have uh uh computer software for teaching reading uh and, and listening to you know listening to kids read. So I think the, the capacity there, the the ability there is, is huge. Um in terms of research that I do for uh, it, the the uh the web is a huge resource, um enormous time saver. But but again you have to be uh, really critical of, of much of the stuff that uh, comes in. Mm-hmm. So, do you think that um, it has, it's overall has a positive effect for early child development, or is it in the way that it's harnessed? I, I think it's, it depends on how it's harnessed, as you say. Yeah. You mentioned that some of in your article that some of the approaches to learning may be harmful. So, what are kind of examples of these harmful approaches to learning? Well, I, I didn't mean harmful in the sense of you know anybody's going to get uh, physically damaged. Right. But um, I, I'm I'm going to I'll describe an experiment that uh, I find fascinating and very informative. <clears throat> this uh, psychologist Elizabeth Bonowitz um, and her team went to a, a science museum, and they caught these kids wandering around. Well, they they asked the parents of five year olds if they could if the kids could participate in an experiment. And she she did she had this uh, toy which had some pieces that turned around and in different directions and they did this and that and some of them you could push on them and they'd make noise and so they they did all kinds of different things this toy so um, she did she did three or four things with these uh, with the kids so in in the first uh, at the at the most uh, developed level she would say things like okay. Uh, John, um, you see this toy here? Look at all these things it does. It does this. If you turn this, it goes this way. And if you push this button, it makes a certain sound. And if you wiggle this thing, it does so-and-so. Um, 
No, I'm going to let you play with it, and, and you, you know, let me know when you're done. <clears throat> then, uh, she, then she had another uh, interaction with the kids where she would uh, start to give them instructions, but then she'd say, whoops, oh, I'm sorry, I, I got a call, I got to go talk to somebody. You, she, you know, it does this and this, but you know, I have to go, so you, you, you play with it and let me know when you're done. So that you know, there was less instruction than in the first uh, intervention format, and then in the in the last version, she uh, said to the kid, "Look at this toy. What what do you think about that? And uh, you you play with it. You whatever you want. Just poke around and you know see what it does." Um, and um, so basically, and she looked at she looked at two things. She looked at um, how much time spent the kid spent playing with this thing and how many different uh, functions the kid uh, discovered. And she found that um, the more she, the, the more detailed instruction she gave the kid, the less time the kid spent and the fewer uh, functions of the toy the kid discovered. Um, so, and for me, that's a really powerful study because it suggests that uh, too much instruction limits exploration and discovery, and and uh, allowing a child to explore with minimal instruction uh, fosters curiosity and exploration and discovery. So, uh, so the the harm. Uh, this is a long-winded story, but the, 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 the conclusion is that um, too much instruction can be harmful in the sense of inhibiting exploration and, dis and discovery and, and, and fostering curiosity and allowing independent exploration, uh, at least in this situation, seemed like a, a, a more powerful way to get the kid to do things on, on his own. Oh, that's a really interesting uh, study and some yeah, really interesting results. Um, yeah. But like, how? What are what are some ways that that kind of exploratory learning or teaching, I guess, could be implemented, like practically in a large classroom? A lot of the classrooms are like thirty, forty kids. So how can that kind of thing be practically implemented? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Um, there are there 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 are many. Uh, programs like like the um, uh, the Montessori program and and Paideia and the International Baccalaureate, in which the focus of teaching is, is uh, fostering independent learning uh, rather than providing information and rote learning and memorization. So the idea is, and, and another a big part of it is problem solving. So you don't present a scientific result, but rather you begin by saying, this is the issue that this scientist was working on. And how do you think he might have gone or, or she might have gone around about addressing that issue? What, what, what kind of a test might she have done to answer this question? Well, that's a good idea, you know. So you get input from the kids, and they see it not not as just something that was done, and you know what the conclusion is, and you have the date attached to it. But you see the process 
of understanding and discovery. So, so many of the programs that are, are effective uh, have that uh, theme and process built into them. And this works at maybe like a very early age. You're saying um, we're saying toddler, four year old, five year old, or does it work better? Uh, well, it, 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 I think I think it, yeah. Once once you have language, you can you can begin. I may, you know, toddler sounds a little young. But young, yeah. Uh, you know, five to through high school and 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 beyond. I mean, that's what graduate school should be. So, <laughs> um, you know, so uh, my my daughter my daughter went to a Hampshire College, which is a school that is based on problem solving. So instead, you know, so uh, when she when she when they taught her statistics, the class was about baseball and and which she didn't care about. But what you know, how do you what kind of things can you measure in baseball? What does that mean? And averages and medians, and, you know, so they, instead of just spoon feeding the consequences and the processes, you show the process of discovery. Right. It's almost like lear- teaching with like application. So it makes exactly. the material a little more interesting as well. Yeah. You, 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 you're living the life of the, of the explorer, the inventor, the discoverer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess also given people's different uh, learning styles, do you think that can be incorporated in terms of some people may prefer mm-hmm. having more guidance over uh, giving them just a very open-ended question or problem? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, 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 think, I think that problem solving is, is a basic skill you want to teach people. Uh, there, there may be different ways in which uh, students uh, learn that kind of information, you know, or, or with an oral focus or visual focus or reading or whatever. But I think the problem-solving focus and process is is central. Um, there's there's an experiment, uh, another experiment. This uh, another psychologist, Carol Dweck. Um, Discovered that, or yeah, discovered that there were two basic uh, mindsets about learning: the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. So, uh, some people thought, you know, some people, some people, you've probably heard this. Some people say, "Well, I can't do math. Uh, you know, I, I, I just can't, or I can't learn languages." Uh, and but other people have the have the sense that they can learn different things, and. Um, and that the mind is a constantly growing uh, capacity that you have. So she um, she then did some experiments where she uh, would take one classroom and teach them the uh, growth mindset. So she would she would teach them about mind development and the kind of processes I, I, I described earlier. And the other uh, the uh, fixed mindset folks, she would just Tell them, well, you know, we're, we're going to learn this and this and this today, and she, and she observed what, in fact, they did learn, and the she found that the it was both kids and actually uh, I think college students as well, the people who were taught the growth mindset had more engagement in the learning and they learned better, and the than the than the than the people who uh, were taught and encouraged to follow the uh, fixed mindset. Uh, approach. So this is an incorporation of the of the 
discovery process into uh, pedagogy. Talking about the growth mindset, so one thing that come that I think about is that a lot of times, um, annoyingly so, we have to like test the students, right? We take exams <laughs> to <laughs> quantify what how much we know, mm-hmm. but. In what you're talking about in terms of the growth mindset or fostering this curiosity, what is some way that you can like either just quantify it or just evaluate that a student is learning and is understanding the material? Well, these studies do use, uh, you know, testing of mm-hmm. uh, acquired knowledge when they're evaluating uh, the perspectives. Uh, so, and, and, and again, what they find is that, you know, people with the growth mindset mm-hmm. have actually acquired more knowledge and and they're probably uh more motivated to keep learning as well mm-hmm. uh so you you can still use a standardized test um mm-hmm. annoying those though those may be uh <laughs> and, and they do that in order to evaluate these uh, interventions okay that's yeah. really cool yeah uh, i guess to bring in another kind of system of human thought in your essay, you talk about Dr. Kahneman's work mm-hmm. of distinguishing the two different systems of kind of fast and slow thinking. Could you elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on this and explain some of the maybe shortcomings of either thought <clears throat> processes? Yeah, uh, Kahneman is a brilliant guy. He won a Nobel Prize for uh, understanding how how people uh, think and, and reason in different situations. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he distinguishes two ways of uh, in which people in which people think he calls them uh, uh, system one and system two. Mm-hmm. Uh, system one is a is a quick system. Uh, it's uh, it's unconscious. It's it's quick. Uh, it's it, it's emotional, um, and it, and it's often <laughs> it's often erroneous, um, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. And uh, system two is uh, slower and harder harder work. Mm-hmm. Um, logical calculating, and it, it's a conscious uh, process. Right. Um, he, 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 I'll give you an example of the kind of error that is made in System 1. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so if people are asked, uh, they're told that um, with a certain kind of operation for, say, a cancer, uh, the, uh, if, you, if you tell people that the survival rate is with one procedure is 90%, and the Death rate with another procedure, with procedure B is ten percent. Mm-hmm. Um, they will, most people will choose the procedure with the survival rate of ninety percent. Okay. When in fact, uh, the survival rate of ninety percent and the death rate of ten percent are equivalent, totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they add right. up to one hundred percent. Right. If you don't survive, then you're dead. Mm-hmm. So uh, and but and and the interesting thing and perhaps uh, problematic thing is that s- surgeons will make the same choice. Mm-hmm. So that that that's that's quick thinking. Um, right. And if you, but if you were to use system two, uh, you would uh, hopefully find out that uh, those the op- the two choices were equivalent. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I guess in terms of day-to-day, it's so much easier to use system one because it just comes (laughs) quickly and there's so many stimuli happening uh, on a day-to-day basis. But how can we kind of encourage more use of this slow and thoughtful thinking in Mm -hmm. our current education system? 
Yeah, well, that, that, that's that's an important question. I, I think that I think the answer is that we have to encourage uh, learning in terms of not simply uh, taking for granted what the teacher says, but uh, questioning and viewing and and being taught in a in a way that uh, makes uh, fosters problem solving rather than rather than just the collection of information um, I, I think that's that's the that's the main point for sure so to conclude then we would like to take some time to ask you about how we can work to refocus our educational system to implement some mm-hmm. of the ideas that we talked about today uh, on self-teaching and the different thought processes yeah that's a good question there are uh, there are uh, many programs that have been uh, used to do this, to, to encourage this kind of learning. Um, I mentioned the Montessori program. Uh, the International Baccalaureate program is, has a similar focus on teaching by uh, problem solving and, and understanding processes by which conclusions are drawn. Um, they've even found that uh, things like aerobics um, and, and some forms of martial arts uh, yeah, are, are uh, effective in um, training people to to solve problems and and um, have this uh, self teaching orientation. Probably because they they are focused on discipline and and respect and uh, and uh, mindfulness. Mindfulness is another uh, important component of this uh, process. Um, there are there are also uh, uh, school curricula that have been developed. Um, there, there's there's some really good reviews of uh, of the different kinds of programs that are available to um, encourage this kind of focus of of teaching the student to be a good self teacher rather than just uh, providing information. Right. Um, so, sorry, you said mindfulness is an important part of this process. Uh, could you explain that a little? Why is it also an important part of part of this process? Uh, well, mind, you know, m- mindfulness is uh, uh, a philosophy in which you're paying attention to yourself and your environment, mm-hmm. um, and that is that is part of uh, of, of the self teaching uh, process. You're like recognizing, aware. yeah, being aware of, of what's going on, and and um, there's a, there are actually therapies that are uh, developed uh, that focus on mind, mindfulness. Uh, cognitive behavior therapy is a is a way of um, by which uh, people who have experienced trauma uh, come to reframe their thinking um, so that the trauma becomes a, a thing that you put in the past and reframe. Um, and 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 it, it takes some of the pain out of that prior traumatic exper- experience. And you also mentioned the Montessori school system a few times. Could you mm-hmm. elaborate a little bit on what that actually is and what it involves? Uh, well, it was a program started in in Italy in the 19th century. It was for poor and or, or, poor kids and orphans. Uh, but the idea is to uh, teach kids. Uh, self-discipline and independence and and thinking um, 
and uh, the the program is very self uh, self directed, I should say. So mm-hmm. there, uh, there's I don't I'm not sure how much of a curriculum there is. The kids explore what they want to explore, and they they get help in doing that. But they but they're not it's not a didactic program, and so they develop skills of of self teaching because they are not only choosing their own direction, but they are making their own discoveries as, as they, as they do that. Um, so it's, so the, the focus is basically, uh, uh, strengthening self-teaching. Um, and also, so I think another key aspect of like our school systems in general is, um, just trying to create equity, right? We have public schools, private schools, all Mm. these different kinds of schools that Mm -hmm. range in socioeconomic class of uh, different socioeconomic classes of the students, race, gender. How does this kind of, how do these differences like kind of play a role in Mm. training the students and in how to self-teach or self-learn? Yeah, that's that's an important question. I I think that, um, unfortunately, uh, many poor and often minority children don't have access to uh, better trained teachers. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know much about how teachers are trained, but I, I suspect that the focus on self-teaching mm-hmm. is, not a, is not a central part of what uh, most teachers who end up in public schools uh, are, are trained in. And mm-hmm. um, I know, you know, for example, so the, these programs that I mentioned, the IB, the International Baccalaureate and, and Montessori, they have special training for that kind of education. Right. Um, but I don't think our overall educational system does that. And I, and I'm, I would imagine that uh, the teacher qualifications uh, for poor schools are not as high as they are for uh, higher paying schools. So it's a real problem. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm not sure how to how to change the system of training for teachers, but uh, it's an important uh, thing to do. Yeah, and then maybe uh, could you maybe talk about how this idea of self-teaching has really helped or played a part in what you do now in your current role or your current work? Like, where does this whole essay kind of stem from or inspire what you do now? Well, I, I use it. I use it all the time. I I, I kind of live it because uh, <laughs> both at work and now I started doing this on weekends as well. I I you know for example with this this project, I began with this idea of that you are the interrogator of information that comes in. You mm-hmm. are your most important teacher. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what does that mean? What is learning? What is teaching? And then I began to look for research. And then I had more and more questions, and I and then I, it occurred to me, well, what you know, how does this start, and where, what does an infant know, and where does the infant's capacity come from, and where does you know, does a does an embryo uh, is an embryo teaching itself, uh, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, I just keep I, I have I have taught myself, I hope successfully to to keep interrogating an issue until I arrive at what I hope is a successful answer to some questions. Um, so I, I use it all the time. I use it at work as well um, to, to explore issues. But I, but I think that anybody, um, I mean, uh, in, in, a, in a craft, in a, in a, 
Uh, there's a there's a, a, a professor of education at UCLA whose mother was a was a waitress, and and he describes the skills that she had to have uh, being a waitress and the problems that she had, you know, uh, complaining customers and and slow cooks and mm-hmm. and you know all all the things. Many of these uh, careers and and occupations that we work in. Uh, are very complex activities and 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 problems are constantly arising so i don't i don't think it's it's uh you don't have to be a geek to use this stuff <laughs> <laughs> uh you know it, it's 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 basic for human activity uh we all have problems on a daily basis and we live complex lives and so um i think these are are fundamental skills it's so true. This field is so important. I actually coincidentally came from a teaching fellow training today, and all these uh-huh. issues we've talked about, inclusivity, different types of learning, just the environment itself, too, is just plays into the role of teaching and learning as a mm-hmm. student. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's. I think it's also a continual process. You learn kind of each day uh, different things, but yep. kind of to... Uh, pick your brain a little bit. Is there any advice that you'd like to share with our listeners who are in the <laughs> early stages of their academic careers? Uh, just keep... Well, you know, you know, one thing that is really valuable is uh, probably, probably make some of you will find painful is uh, writing papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because, because you have to... If you're, and, and getting feedback because you have to define a problem and you have to to find the resources that you need to problem to solve that problem and the tools you need, and then you have to do it. Um, so, uh, and, and you have to be concise and you have to be clear. And and in writing it down, you are explaining for someone else, so you clarify your own thinking. Um, again, in my own experience, what I think I is the mo- are the most important things that I learned were uh, defining an issue. Uh, figuring out what solving that issue required, getting those tools, um, and then applying them. Um, and it's it's a it's a it's a creative process. It's a fun process. Well, it is for me. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> yes. For most researchers. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And so uh, that, that's that's what I would encourage uh, students to do: work on the on that process and and enjoy it and. And and learn from uh, you know your instructors uh, who may correct uh, or, or and watch what they do as well. So that that's another uh, way you can learn how to proceed. With that, it's time to wrap up. Uh, thank you for tuning in to this episode of Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. Join us next month for our next podcast on the series on organelles. Mm-hmm. Thank you to the school, Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and this podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast, and the YJBM Editorial Board for supporting this effort. The editors-in-chief of YJBM are Amelia Hallworth and Devin Wash, and the podcast coordinator for YJBM is Kelsey Kessel. And of course, thank you, Dr. Hahn, for joining us today and taking time to answer our questions. Um, for more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit our website, medicine.yale.edu backslash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology on Medicine 
at pubmed.com. You can contact, contact us by email at yjbm at yale.edu or on Twitter. And we'd love to get your feedback and questions, so feel free to send us your thoughts via email. If you enjoyed our podcast, make sure to share on SoundCloud or Apple's podcast app. See you for the next installment of the YJBM podcast. Thank you.